0: What's that childlike boy's thing, you know? I want to collect all the toy cars, and you know? I wanted to collect all the countries. Sort of compulsive, I guess. I've always been a compulsive record keeper. It's useful. Fortunately, I kept records of where we went and where we stayed because it turned into a book. That wasn't the plan. I hadn't sort of set out thinking, keep good records because you're going to make a book out of this.
1: Meet Tony Wheeler. If his name is familiar to you, it's because he and his wife Maureen started a little guidebook called Lonely Planet. You may have heard of it. Well, it all started with a trip they took nearly 50 years ago. A trip that changed everything. Hi, I'm Jonathan Gruber, and this is The Journey... The Journey is an original podcast by KLM Royal Dutch Airlines, where we meet extraordinary people whose lives are transformed by travel. Tony Wheeler grew up born to travel. His father worked for a British airline in the 1940s and 50s. So in an era when most people were still traveling long distances by boat, Tony went by plane. First stop, when he was a year and a half old was
0: Pakistan It took three days to fly to Pakistan because you only flew in daytime and you stopped at night you flew down to Marseille from Pool. you spent the night in Marseille got on the plane again the next day flew to somewhere else to refuel and then somewhere else and ended up I think in Cairo or something and, and another day you flew on to the Gulf and refueled again and eventually on day three you got to crouching Travel
1: shall we say, was a bit different in those days. And so was doing business, especially
0: at the airline Tony's father worked for. I mean, now, you know, everywhere an airline goes, everything is outsourced, of course. If you had staff, you'd have them locally. Whereas in those days, they sent staff out from Britain, so he was sent to work in Pakistan, in the Bahamas, and in America. Tony counted four different countries as home
1: by the time he returned to Britain at 16.
0: Although, actually, I was always at home everywhere. They were all good. But we did sort of come back to Britain every year, even if only briefly. So in a way, England was home. Your grandparents lived there. So I finished school here. Then I went to university. So that's three years. And then I worked for two years. And then I went back to university for two years. And then I left Britain and never came back.
1: At 72, Tony Wheeler still rarely spends more than a few weeks in one place before hitting the road, or the skies again. He has a place in Melbourne and in London, but the journey that led him to where he is today all started back when he was still in school studying to be an engineer.
0: He was strolling one afternoon through London's Regent's Park. The sun is still out. It's October, but it's still a little bit sunny. I'll sit down on a the- Park bench and read this magazine I've just bought and sat down on this park bench and been reading for 15 minutes and this woman came and sat on the other end of the park bench. Here I am reading a car magazine and she's reading Tolstoy and we started talking and it hasn't stopped for nearly 50 years. That woman was Maureen and it turned out she was interested in other places too. That first summer that we travelled together We went to Czechoslovakia and then we went down into Austria and into Yugoslavia and then back to London at the end of that month or so. During my last year at university, we started talking about doing a big trip. It was the era for that sort of trip and we were both very enthusiastic about doing that. ATM, you know, seize the day. You only live once, all those things. You realise how unusual that is, yes? No, it's not unusual at all. A lot of people live their lives in as full a fashion as they can. They should be if they're not. (laughs) The year was 1972.
1: Flower power had had its heyday, but the anti-establishment sentiment was still strong. Lots of young people were setting out to discover the world on their own terms.
0: It was the era of the hippie trail. You know, the hippie trail was one of the things to do, and the Beatles were in India, and... Lots of people were traveling across Asia and uh, coming back with these smelly coats from Afghanistan and buying and selling things and looking for the meaning of life and heading down to the beach and taking their clothes off in Goa and heading up to Nepal. Traveling the Hippie Trail was different,
1: especially if you grew up regularly using planes as a mode of transport.
0: We called it the Asia Overland Trip. And the idea was you went to Asia and you didn't fly there, you went overland. You definitely went through Istanbul. You went across Turkey or you might have gone down into Syria and Iraq, but Turkey was the usual route. You went into Iran. You certainly went to Tehran. You probably went down to Isfahan and Shiraz and so on. You went into Afghanistan, to Herat, down to Kandahar. Everybody went to Kabul. And then you carried on, Pakistan, India and Kathmandu. And Kathmandu was sort of the destination. That was the place you headed to.
1: Tony and Maureen started
0: planning their trip. There was just one problem. There wasn't all the information there is today. You know, you couldn't go on the internet and Google for hippie trail and find out all about it. You couldn't go to a bookshop and find a dozen books about all the countries that you're going to go through and read people's accounts of doing this or doing that. That information just was not there.
1: Back then, travel guides for that part of the world didn't really exist, so you more or less went into
0: your travels blind. But that didn't stop Maureen and Tony. We bought an old car in London with the intention that we'd just drive it as far as it would go. The intention was we'd go somewhere where we could sell it, and you couldn't sell it just anywhere. So we would sort of thought, well, you could go to Kathmandu and sell it in Kathmandu. Our aim was to get to Australia. Because at that time, if you were British, you didn't need a visa. You could just turn up. And so,
1: when the school year finished, Maureen and Tony filled their car with spare parts, a tent, maps, sleeping bags, a stove, and food. They set off from Tony's parents' place shouting, We'll be back in a year. They crossed the English Channel by boat, and then the drive began. From Amsterdam, they drove via Switzerland, Italy, and Greece to Istanbul. They took another ferry across the Bosphorus into Asia, traveling through Turkey. So far, everything had gone to plan.
0: Well, most of the time. Somebody turned up with a gun, but he, I'm sure he was there to look after us rather well, than... How to can friends. you be Sure. I'm still here today. Well, t- well, when they turned up with guns, what did you think? What do you do? You know, they didn't shoot us. They, they said, would you like some tea? You know?
1: After that, it was on to Iran, where they encountered the Shah's motorcade, and then to Afghanistan. It was a tour of highlights. Isfahan, the Caspian Sea, Mashhad, Herat. When they got to Kabul, they sold their car, and took a bus from Jalalabad over the Khyber Pass into Pakistan. After that, it was more buses from Peshawar to Lahore, and then to Amritsar in northern India. They stopped in Varanasi, the holy city where India's Hindus cremate their dead. From there, they took a train to the Nepalese border and the Dawn
0: bus to the end of the hippie trail, Kathmandu. In some ways Kathmandu was a high point of the trip. Because it was cheap, the food was good and everything about it was exotic and wonderful, wonderful. Everything you'd hoped? Everything I'd hoped, yeah. Kathmandu wasn't the end of the road for us. Australia was. And the plan was we'll work in Australia. The original plan was we'll arrive there penniless. Three months work, that'll be enough money to fly back to London. In the meantime
1: though, they had to get from Kathmandu to Australia. So they left the well-trodden Hippie Trail and ventured off on their own. They started by going to Calcutta and then crossed into Southeast Asia. Traveling off the beaten path was novel, but not easy.
0: Southeast Asia was much more a sort of uh, a mystery. We didn't know so much about it. There were hardly any tourists in Bangkok. Tourism in Bangkok at that time meant GIs and R&R from the Vietnam War, basically. And then, you know, we went down to Indonesia, and we really we knew nothing about Indonesia. We got to Jakarta, and we just didn't have any information. We didn't know which way to turn. We didn't know where to find a hotel, and we spent hours walking around trying to find a cheaper hotel and found some terrible place in the end. If I'd known there was this particular area to go to, which was already in a small way starting to develop as the sort of backpacker's center of Jakarta.
1: Only you had to find it yourself.
0: Yeah, the Lonely Planet Guide hadn't been published at that point. But Tony was a compulsive record keeper, remember? And he was taking notes. We got up this morning, visited this museum and that temple and something else. Got on the bus. The bus cost this much. It took that number of hours. Got off, looked for a hotel. Didn't stay in that hotel, did stay in that hotel. Had dinner in this restaurant. It cost so much, you know.
1: But after arriving in Indonesia, Tony and Maureen realized they were running out of money and needed to find
0: a way to Australia. The most miserable thing when you're a young penniless traveler is going someplace where you can't afford it. We certainly couldn't afford to actually fly from Bali or Jakarta all the way to Singapore or Melbourne. It was right out of our price bracket. We couldn't afford that sort of thing. So the idea was you went down to um, the island of Timor and you could fly across quite a short flight from... Timor to Darwin in the north of Australia. And that was our plan until the airline that took you down from Bali to Timor went bankrupt. But,
1: as you've probably already figured out by now, Maureen and Tony were
0: resourceful. And then we bumped into this New Zealander with a yacht. He was talking in a cafe and we heard him say I've got a yacht and I'm sailing down to Australia and I need a couple more crew. And we sort of jumped up and said we'll join you and He said, "Okay, toss in $20 for the food, and we leave in two days' time. Well, it didn't quite go to plan. We were just going to sail straight south from Bali, and the plan was six to eight days. Um, But it took 16 days. There was no wind, and when there was wind, it blew in the wrong direction, and... We were becalmed for a couple of days at one point, and the food was running out, and it was um, not the most comfortable trip. <laughs> but you know, you're, you're young, you put up with these things. <laughs> Didn't you have a moment when you were scared? Oh yeah, yeah. After the becalmed episode, there was a storm episode, and the sails split one night. and You're spinning around in circles, and you're thinking, was this a good idea? Probably not.
1: <laughs> Eventually, though, they got to the very northwestern
0: tip of Australia. We landed at a place called Exmouth. We arrived there, and you know, our captain rowed ashore and boat, and walked up the beach and hitched a ride into town and found the immigration officer and said, I've just showed up in a yacht, to come out and stamp our passports, which was exactly what happened. The immigration guy said to Maureen and I, Well, what are you? Are you visitors or immigrants? And we said, oh, A, is there a choice? And B, what is the difference? And he sort of scratched his head and he thought, well, no one's ever asked me that. And he said, I don't know. And he sort of flicked through the book. And he said, oh, he said, if you're an immigrant, you get um, medical insurance for three months for free. So he said, oh, OK, then we'll be immigrants. So he stamped in our passport, we arrived in Australia, immigrants. Because at that moment we'd said immigrant rather than visitor, we were in the door and could stay. Our original plan had changed because by that point we'd had so much fun. It had just been this wonderful trip. Everything had been just terrific, and we'd seen so much, and we'd just got a taste for it and really wanted to do more of it. We decided we'll spend a year in Australia and we'll save enough money to travel for another year. So instead of around the world in one year, now it's around the world in three years. So we hitchhiked across to Sydney And the last ride dropped us off in Sydney. And I remember Maureen said, well, here we are. We've made it. We've made it all the way from London to Sydney. We've taken six months. It's been a great trip. How much money have we got left? And I said, well, we've got 27 cents. (laughs) That was what we, that was, honest to God, what we had left. 27
1: cents wasn't a lot of money, even in the early 1970s. But did that stop them?
0: It did not. They simply forged on like they always did. I had a camera, and we got $25 for my camera from a loan shop, and Maureen got a job in a sandwich bar that day, so all the sandwiches that were left over that evening she could bring home, so we had food, as well as getting paid, and um, away it went.
1: Tony and Maureen immediately started working. They put in long hours. Their strategy was to live on one salary while saving the other. They also started making friends, friends who were curious about their travels.
0: So many people asked us, where'd you go, how'd you do it, what did it cost? They'd say, oh, those hotels you said you stayed in, could you just write them down for us? They began to get more and more notes who were giving to people, and you began to think, well, why couldn't you make these notes into a book and actually sell it to people? And that is exactly what they did. We started writing this and wrote more and more of it. Um, it got bigger and um, I drew maps for it. It was all very amateur air. This is all of Asia in 96 pages. And the first 1500, we folded and stapled and trimmed them ourselves. We were trying to think of a name. Yeah, we got a title across Asia on the cheap. We didn't have a name for the publishing house. And um, there's a song where Joe Cocker sings Space Captain about traveling across the sky and this lonely planet catching his eye. And I said to Maureen, Lonely Planet, doesn't that sound good? Why don't we call it Lonely Planet? And Maureen said, great idea, except actually he sings Lovely Planet. So it was a mistake, I'd misheard it. The name's been an error for 50 years.
1: And with their misheard name, the book was ready. Now all they had to
0: do was sell it. And I went into what was the biggest bookshop in Sydney and found the guy who ran the travel book area. And the travel book area was just, you know, a few shelves. It wasn't anything like it would be today. And I described what I was planning to do, write a book about the hippie trail and produce it myself, I described it to him. He said, yeah, that sounds okay." He said, if you come in here with that book as something I could put on the shelves, I'll buy 50 copies. So we did it. And I went around all the other bookshops in Sydney and nobody else ordered 50, but they all ordered 10 or 12 or six or something, you know, they all ordered some. And within a week or two, we'd sold the whole lot. We had to reprint and then we had to reprint it again. We ended up selling nearly 10,000 of that first book, and we only ever sold it in Australia and New Zealand. It didn't get out of Australia and New Zealand.
1: Tony and Maureen had originally planned to work in Australia for a year, save some money, and spend another year travelling back to England to resettle there. But in the meantime, Lonely Planet had been born,
0: and their trip's date of departure was approaching. Except we're not now setting out back to Europe. We're setting out to do another book. So when was the moment... That you realized that this is who you were? I think when we set off to do that second book, I sort of thought this is the start of a business. Instead of
1: heading back to England, they decided to write a guidebook that zoomed in on Southeast Asia.
0: It was very evident that this was an area that people didn't know about. All they knew about Southeast Asia was Vietnam.
1: It was the mid-1970s, and even though the war in Vietnam was coming to an end, no one was thinking of it as a place to travel. But Tony and Maureen could see that the whole area was starting to open up. So they traveled around there for a year, fact finding for the new book.
0: We set out from Sydney, we traveled up to the north of Australia on a motorcycle. We took the motorcycle across to Timor, and then we took that motorcycle all the way through Asia. The second book was much more a planned operation. We knew we were doing a guidebook. We didn't just note down the name of the place we stayed. We noted down the names of all the cheap hotels and chose the ones we were going to write up about. And we travelled around pretty much everywhere we could think of that people would travel to. The first one was printed by some guy and he was the printer. All he had was the one little printing press in his basement The second one was printed by a professional printer... ...and it was professionally done... ...and the whole thing about it was far more professional.
1: Lonely Planet was beginning to grow. They decided to settle in Australia, not England... ...and Tony, well, he gave up on the idea of being an engineer. Over the next few years, they made a name for themselves... ...by producing a dozen or so guides for countries that, at the time... ...were on the literal road less traveled... ...like Sri Lanka... And Burma, today's Myanmar. They were small, inexpensive books, and by this time they had a network of travelers and writers who they'd commissioned to gather information. They hired an assistant, found a distributor, and paid an artist to draw their maps. Tony even went to the Frankfurt Book Fair, the largest book fair in the world, to promote Lonely Planet. But after a while, It became clear that they needed to put out a guide to a much larger country and one of the most complex in the world. A book that would
0: be a game changer. We'd sort of done these books and we thought we've got enough money now to actually do a bigger book. There were a lot of people going to India. We covered India in a small fashion in our All of Asia book. But you know, it was nothing at all compared to the size India was. It was a
1: risk but one they felt they had to take if they were going to prove their worth to travelers.
0: It came out to be much bigger than we had intended, and it took much longer to put together. It took a long time to put together. We'd been doing 200 and 300-page books, and suddenly we had a 700-page book. We'd been doing books that were $295 and $395 and $495 dollars, and suddenly we had a book, that I think it was $14.95, and these books we have been doing had been selling, generally, you know, 10,000 was our usual print run if we thought it was going to be a good book. Well, India went back and sold 30,000, 40,000, 50,000, 60,000, you know, it just went on and on.
1: What made Lonely Planet so popular was its approach to travel.
0: It was a fair amount about traveling at ground level, experiencing things for real, experiencing things closer up, interacting with people and enjoying the locality of it. We were in our early 20s, we had no money. So you're doing books for people who are in their early 20s with no money. And I'm a great believer in young people traveling. I think when they get out there at first, they really do experience more things. And I think there's a a lot of virtues in not having much money. It does bring you closer to earth and you experience things in a, a better fashion.
1: They also provided travelers with practical, useful
0: information that couldn't be found anywhere else. Today, all that information is available. You want to do a map, you look it up on Google Maps. Whereas in those days, so often you couldn't find any map at all. You'd have to go and you'd walk, you'd pace out, 100 paces. You have your compass, turn to the east, walk 50 paces, there's the next, you know, and you'd draw a map that way. Basically, you'd come to a new town, and you'd find a hotel, you'd dump your bag, and you'd start walking around. And as you walked, you'd be drawing the map, and you'd be noting the places, and you did it that way. A lot of walking. You had to see the market at dawn, you had to see the nightclubs at midnight. You had to do it all. (laughs)
1: After the guide to India came out, things changed. And before they knew it, Lonely Planet had become kind of an empire. The guides became so popular that Ethiopian rebels in 1991 used a Lonely Planet map to find their way around Addis Ababa to overthrow the government. Rebellions aside, Lonely Planet, the company,
0: went from strength to strength. It grew enormously and I was kind of stunned. It did grow far more than i anticipated. And it got bigger than I anticipated and it became an international operation. They were growing
1: because the world was changing. It was opening up, flights were getting cheaper, and people were traveling more. Tony's compulsion for collecting things, whether it was countries or the facts about them, was core to Lonely Planet's success. They moved from hand-illustrated hippie books about places off the beaten track to Lonely Planet, the world's largest guidebook publisher. It was a household name. They had published 500 books of nearly every country in the world and sold tens of millions of copies. They had more than 500 employees and 300 authors on the road. Tony and Maureen had started Lonely Planet almost on a whim 35 years ago in a small Australian apartment. Things had changed so much by 2007 that they decided to sell it.
0: Our kids weren't going to carry the business on and the business was getting increasingly digital. The digital side was becoming more and more important but it wasn't my first love. My first love was the books in print so that wasn't going to carry on. And if you're going to be involved in anything you've got to be absolutely passionate about it. You can't be thinking, well, I quite like this but isn't my great love in life. We thought, you know what, that's time to move on to something else. Did you not have a sense of loss? Oh, yeah. But it was time for a change.
1: After selling the company, Tony and Maureen started the Planet Wheeler Foundation, which is over 60 projects in Asia and Africa that help fight poverty. These days, Tony and Maureen divide their time between Australia and London, and, of course, all the other places they still want to visit. Because Tony is still passionate about travel. Tony Wheeler collects countries like some people collect stamps.
0: I get a real kick out of going places and, you know, new places in particular. And there's lots of places I haven't been to. You know, last year, one of the places I went to was Cyprus because I'd never been there before. And, you know, you draw a straight line between here and Australia. And I was flying back to Australia. And I thought, well, I could just stop in Cyprus and have a look around Cyprus. Someone asked me recently, what's on your bucket list still that you really want to do? And I came up with 30 with no trouble at all. Two years ago, I did a four-month trip. It was a driving trip. I drove from Bangkok to London with some other people in old cars, old MGBs, the English sports car of the 60s and 70s. Every single day of that trip was just like the old days. It was like the hippie trail in the 70s. It was the Silk Road in 2017. But for Tony, the essence of travel is that it
1: opens you up to the generosity of others, usually in the most unexpected of places.
0: You go to Iran, and I've been to Iran a number of occasions, and you've met nothing but kindness so often. And I remember one occasion about ten years ago, and I was travelling around, by myself, travelling around Iran, and on a number of occasions, I'd be in a restaurant, and I'd be sitting there, and I'd ordered food, and someone would come over from another table and said, we see you by yourself, we speak English at our table, why don't you come and join us? That just doesn't happen in restaurants in the West so much, does it? You don't get invited to somebody else's table in and a restaurant. And that's, that's great. Do you think that's what travel does with people? Yeah, it does. If people did travel, more they would be kinder. They would be more out there, more empathetic.
1: So, what's the one thing Tony wants you to take away from his story? Live your dreams.
0: If there's something you wanted to do, do it. Look, one of the things Maureen and I say over and over again, if the big tram ran us down tomorrow, what would I say? I'd say, well, I've had a wonderful time. I'm not going to regret a thing. There's more things I'd love to do. and Hopefully i get to do some more of them yet. If I had 24 months in a year, there'd be enough things to fill it.
1: Tony Wheeler. We'll put links to Tony's books and the Planet Wheeler Foundation on our website, podcast.klm.com. You've been listening to The Journey, an original podcast brought to you by KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. For more background on this story and to hear more stories about the trip that changed everything, go to podcast.klm.com. Com. And why not review us on Apple Podcasts? It helps other listeners find this podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Jonathan Gruber.